If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Exodus chapter 32. We'll soon be reading the first 14 verses of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can follow along as we read uh, the Bibles that are provided for you in the pockets of the pew in front of you, and you can find Exodus chapter 32 on page 67 of that Bible. I am man enough to admit that I kind of like magic, kind of like magic, not enough to buy like one of those boxes that people keep at home so that they can learn the tricks. I don't even actually like watching magic all that much. It doesn't fascinate me. I know that it's an illusion. It's not like what's going on earlier in in Exodus where they're actually making water into blood and the Egyptian magicians are bringing frogs up from the ground. I know that that's not what's going on. I know that they know what they're doing. So in the end, the woman's not actually going to get sawn in half and they're eventually going to find the king of clubs that that guy picked out and all that stuff. I know that that's going to be the end of it. So the, the actual presentation doesn't interest me all that much. What does interest me is all the stuff that needs to go into the trick to get it to work. Magic is this weird, equal combination of psychology, sleight of hand, even mechanics. Not just the mechanics of the hand-eye coordination that it takes, but but sometimes literally mechanics and how they build the things that they're, they're using. I find all of that incredibly fascinating. One of the, the things that I, I like the best because I, I just want to know how they do it. I, could, I would watch magic all the time if all it was was telling me how they do tricks. That's all I really want to know. And one of the things is that, that quick change things where they'll, they'll pull up a screen and then they'll drop it and they'll be wearing something completely different in one second from what they were wearing just a second before. You can make yourself disappear that way too if you do that and then run behind the wall. I did that with my, my little boys and they clapped and, and saying, ask for more and I, I was both equally encouraged by that and kind of affronted. I think that they were just happy that I was gone. So, uh, but they do this quick change thing and, and there are people who will do this like 15 times in one and how can you wear that many layers of clothes? I just don't know how it works and it's amazing that people can actually go through and, and do things like that and this is actually what's going on I think here in Exodus. We have a quick change. We have these, these people who the last time we met them, the last time we heard from them, the last time they were doing anything, they were clearly confessing and assuring Moses and assuring the Lord of their continued steadfast obedience. Back in chapter 19 and verse 18, they assure Moses before the Ten Commandments are even given, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. After the Ten Commandments are given and after the the rules and kind of the case law that we talked about from from 20, basically the end of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 all the way through chapter 24, they agree two different times to what the Lord does. In 24.3, they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses then takes out the book of the covenant, reads it in the hearing of the people, not just the Ten Commandments, but all the case law, everything that comes after it. And they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They're like double stamping it. We will do it, and we will be obedient. There's no doubt about this, Moses. At the end of the passage, Moses It's taken up to the top of the mountain, into God's presence, into the fire, into the cloud. And we read at the end of chapter 24 and 24, 18, that he's up there for 40 days and for 40 nights. Number 40 is an ominous number in scripture. It almost always pretends very bad things to happen. In Genesis, the flood begins when it rains for 40 days. The people were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, which is just 40 tens, 40 decades 
Eventually, the spies are going to go into the land, and they're going to check out the land for 40 days before they bring back a bad report, and the people are going to wander through the desert for 40 years, and Jesus is going to be tempted for 40 days. 40 is a very ominous number. Moses is up on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. If the people here have made their New Year's resolution that we're going to follow the Lord, it doesn't take till mid-February by the time they just completely and utterly give that up. And in an incredibly dramatic fashion, the second command is very, very clear. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You're just, you're not to do it. We will follow the word of the Lord. We will be obedient. The very next thing we hear about them are these words about the golden calf that they have made. Clearly going against the very obvious and straightforward command of the Lord. The question that awaits us is this. What is it that keeps us from falling in the same way? Their problem is that Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights. They don't know what has happened to him. What happens to us when the waiting gets hard? What happens to us when hardship hits and the Lord seems to tarry? Not just tarry in giving us resolution to it. Not just tarry in healing us. Not just tarry in taking away the difficulties. But even just in tarrying and not coming back. Let us hear about the folly of the people of God here from the word of our Lord. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may, I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they 
shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. So we go to this word. I want to first talk to you about the reflex of idolatry. The delay of Moses and coming down sparks a crisis for the people. I don't think it's hard to understand what that crisis is. 40 days is, in some sense, a very short amount of time, but in another sense, it's a really long time for Moses to be up on the mountain. And, and remember what's going on on the mountain at this time. There is a blazing fire up there. There's smoke up there. They think he's likely dead. That's why they say, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Moses has gone up. It's clearly a disaster area up there. How could he live? We don't know. But Moses is gone. Who has been the one who has been speaking to the Lord? Who is the one who has heard everything from the Lord? Who is the one who has communicated from the Lord between the Lord and the people of Israel? Who is the one who has guided them and directed them? The people now have no connection to God. They don't know how they're going to communicate to him if Moses is dead. They're stranded on this mountain with this God who they don't know. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how they're going to get there. They don't know how they're going to fight off the people around them. You can understand why they are so, so worried about this. They panic, and in their panic, they turn to the thing that they've known their whole lives. Their reflex is immediate, up, and make us an idol. And not only is their reflex immediately that, Aaron doesn't pause for a second. Aaron, who ought to know better. Aaron, who is called the priest and the high priest. He is the one who is going to stand in between God and them. Yet, there is no compunction for Aaron. We read of no hesitation in him at all. Let us look not so much at the form of the idolatry, but at what the nature of idolatry is. What does idolatry do? The first thing that idolatry does is uphold certainty and knowledge. It just, it clings on to it. It's an unwarranted need for certainty and knowledge. The people don't know what's going on with Moses. They say, we, we can't have this. We can't have this steaming, smoldering fire of a God and not know how to communicate with him, not know how we're going to talk to him. So we're going to rely upon the thing that we've known all of our lives. We're going to make an idol. We're going to form it and fashion it. They understand idols. They know how to move idols. They know how to keep idols with them. They know how to work the system of idols. This God on the mountain seems to be untamable and at times quite unfathomable to them. There is a certainty for them with idols. It's what they've known. It's what they're comfortable with. Friends, at some level, minor levels at times, major levels at other times, we absolutely have to be okay with not having any sort of certainty at all. There's a reason why we're called to faith. There are times in which we're going to have to rely upon the fact that we don't know everything, and God quite clearly is not intent to tell us everything that we might want to know. This is the very same thing that atheists cry out for. If, unless you can show me through the rigors of science or through the rigors of logic that God exists, I'm, not, I'm just not going to give in to it. I'm, I'm not going to buy into it. i got to have certainty. God has not called us to certainty, but to trust. And whether we like it or not, that's how he operates. 
You, you don't get to get around it. You don't get to, to plead with him and to ask him. It's not a few people in here throughout their lives that have questioned, why is there pain? Why is there suffering in the world if God is good and God is all-powerful? Why do we suffer? In the book of Job, there's always the best example for this. In the book of Job, Job goes through intense suffering and, and he argues with his three friends about the nature of pain and the nature of suffering and how that relates to God. For almost the entirety of the book, we have this discussion going on about the nature of pain and suffering and we expect once we hear God is going to show up, the whole idea, the whole nature of the book has been an arguing about this particular issue. When God shows up, clearly we're going to get our answers. Now we're going to hear about it. We get no answers. God simply looks at Job and says, dude, I'm God. I don't have to answer a question that you ask me. I don't have to do anything. Were you there when I made the earth, when I formed it and fashioned it and said to the waves, you can come this far and no further? The point is that God is the one who is in control of what we know, when we know it, and how we know it. And friends, you simply have to be comfortable with that. And if you cannot stand in front of a gracious, merciful, kind, all-powerful, all-loving God and not be okay with him not revealing everything that your heart desires to you, if you struggle with that, if you feel that somehow it's wrong and that he owes it to you, I would warn you, idolatry will lurk near. In the end, God doesn't give you what you want simply because you ask it. What he wants from you is trust. What he wants from you is patience. In time, you will get what you need. His grace will always be sufficient for you. The first thing that idolatry does is that the second thing. These aren't points on your list, by the way. I always mess that up and people get confused. So we're still on the first point, but there's three sub-points if you want to write them down. The second thing we find idolatry doing is misusing God's provision. It is not something that is easy to overlook, that the very things that the people of Israel got on their way out of Egypt that God gave them favor inside of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians would hand them earrings and gold bracelets and all of the silver and gold and bronze. He, he allows them to go through and basically ransack Egypt on their way out. At the same time, the very first thing we read in Exodus 25 is God saying, remember all that stuff that I gave you? I want to dwell with my people. I want to be with them. In order for that to happen, I'm going to need a tabernacle to be made. And in order for that tabernacle to be made, that stuff that I gave to them, you're going to ask them to give it back to me. And they're going to give it back to me. They're going to give it back to the construction of this tabernacle so that I can be with them. It is the peak of irony then that because God doesn't work on their timetable, instead of giving an offering of that very thing to God, they instead use it to absolutely crack open one of his commands. God says, ask for them a contribution. And Aaron says, I need you to contribute. But not for the building of a tabernacle, for the building of this cow that you can then worship. And the people gladly give it. They gladly hand over their stuff. They knew exactly what they were doing. We can look at this and dismiss it. We can think that, well, gods don't work like that. That's not a real God, and we're not tempted to do it. But again, the form of it doesn't really matter. It's the essence of it that does. 
Just because we don't make golden calves doesn't mean idolatry isn't our problem. This is what idolatry does. It takes the good things that God has given you and it allows you to misuse them so that you can simply break the Lord's commands. Every, every person who is gifted with the grace of God in this world, every single person who has provision from God in this world, who has food in their mouths and a shelter over their head, those things are good gifts that God has given to you that you ought to be thankful to him for because he has provided those things for you. You have two arms, two legs, and a brain. And God has given those things to you so that you can make it through this world. All of that screams out for your thankfulness. And instead, what idolatry does is take those good gifts that God has given us and to use those very gifts against what God has said that we should or should not do. There's something especially evil about that. Taking the, th- the very graciousness of gift that God has given to his people and using that to break his own commands. People make their idol. They make something to bow down and worship. We do this with other things. The essence is the same, even if the form is different. We take the good that God has given us and we use it to break his commands. Use the things that God has given you to serve him. That doesn't mean that you don't get to use them for your own pleasure and for your own good. We do this all the time. There's nothing wrong with it. But we'd better make sure that the good things that God gives us, we are first and foremost taking to his kingdom. And secondly, we are making sure that when we use them outside of that particular nature of his kingdom, we are doing so in line with his word and not against it. Doing with it what we ought to, not doing with it what we should not do. The third thing we see idolatry doing here is basically baptizing the perversion. It's unclear exactly what Aaron is talking about. There's a, there's a weird problem with the translation here when it says these are the gods that you have made and it's clear that they don't necessarily think that there's many gods there, there's just one idol there. It could just be a word for like deity and talking about that, the nature of God or something like that where it's unclear. But it is clear one thing that goes on. After that idol is formed and Aaron makes that altar, he looks at them and he says this. Here, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And that Lord is L-O-R-D capitalized. It is the divine name. Here is, here is a feast to Yahweh. Don't know exactly what Aaron gets at here, but it's at least clear that he wants his cake and eat it too. They, they want a God that is not the God who is steaming the top of that mountain. They want a God who will answer to them. They want a God in their presence that they can touch and they can feel and they can manipulate. They want a God here that they can control. But Aaron also knows that his people know that it's not the gods of Egypt that delivered them from Egypt. It's not the gods from where they've come from that have delivered. It's not the gods that they're going to. It's not Ra in Egypt. It's not Baal and Marduk and Babylon and Canaan. It is Yahweh. So it's a real easy solution. What we're going to do is we're going we're to make this idol and we're just going to call it Yahweh. He's given us his name. We know what his name is. We're just going to say that this golden calf is Yahweh. We're going to have a feast to the Lord. This is how it's done, isn't it? Isn't this the nature of idolatry? You do something evil and wrong. You ignore the scripture and the revelation that you've been given. You play it off like it's okay. And then you sanction all of it by declaring that God's good with it. It's really simple. It's really easy. The people haven't even heard much from God at this point. He's spoken mostly through Moses. They've gotten like 10 words out of him in a bunch of case law. And it was really clear, this is unacceptable at all levels. And there's no one in the camp 
No one in the camp was like, Aaron, this is a, this is a bad idea. This is, this is probably not the right way to handle this situation. I know that there's a lot of stuff going on, but maybe we shouldn't do this. Everyone seems to be caught up in it. This is, by the way, one of the best reasons for us to continually be coming back to Scripture. Because we, we so often simply baptize the very evil that we do by declaring that it's okay with God. And maybe you don't do that specifically, but the church has done that for years we can find example after example in history of people who are associated with the church doing evil things and then saying, but you see, this is the work of the Lord. It's okay. So we come back to Scripture again and again and again so that we are continually fed pictures of what God is like and what God wants so that we don't go off the reservation like this. And notice how instinctual all of this is. It's just hard-baked into the people. There's no consideration of what is right or what is wrong. No one's bringing up to Aaron of all people. What did the Lord say? Just a reflectual, yeah, I don't know why we didn't do this earlier. Let's, let's do it. They rise and they play and they have their fun. What happens then because of it? Let's talk secondly about the result of idolatry. The result of their idolatry is seen by God and God alone. Moses apparently is in the cloud. He's in the fire. He is tucked away in the mountain. He cannot see what's going on down there. Obviously, God can. And God says immediately to him, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. If anyone's a parent, you recognize that kind of language. Your child has done wrong. It is not your child anymore, but all of a sudden, they belong to your spouse. It is their children. But Moses and God understand this is not just this sort of way of, of taking responsibility away from God. He's not just dumping responsibility on Moses like this is his fault. Something very, very serious going on here. What God is doing is moving away from the people. He is distancing himself from the people. The people want to be distanced from God? Fair enough. You're Moses' people. He was the one that delivered you. Don't include me in this. People sometimes say when they hear what heaven is like, they can't really quite get on board with it. Not what heaven is like in those books that were famous like 10 to 15 to 20 years ago where some kid spends 35 minutes in heaven and he, he writes about it and it's all just not really in accord with what scripture says at all. But when you actually look at what scripture says heaven is like, it's basically just, well, it's worship. There's a meal in there. That meal is pretty worshipful. For the most part, we're standing around in front of God, taking him in, being in awe and wonderstruck by him and, and having it be the most amazing thing that we've ever seen forever and ever and ever, never giving bored, worshiping him. And people look at that and they're like, I don't know that I can do that. Listen, it is a really weird thing to be concerned that people are going to have to suffer through heaven. You're not going to. No one is going to be dragged into heaven. No one goes kicking and screaming into heaven. Well, Pentecostals do, but that's just how they get down. The rest of us just, just kind of quietly rejoicing, go into heaven. They're not dragged there at the very least. We talk about irresistible grace, but that's because grace is beautiful and wonderful. It makes us love it and want it. People aren't dragged there. If you don't want to be in heaven, you're not going to be. It's what God is doing here. It's an incredibly powerful and passive thing. If you want distance from God, God says, that's fine. I will then pull back from you. 
But of course, even in God pulling back from them, human beings cannot simply stay put. They're always drawn to something. And here God uses a familiar way of talking about the Israelites in verse 9. He says, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. First time in Scripture that has come up, and it's clearly related to the fact that they have just made a golden calf. A calf, whether it is solid gold and smaller, or whether it's a larger wooden structure with gold overlaid on it, doesn't matter. That neck ain't moving. This is exactly what Isaiah says later. When he talks about the people of Israel in his days, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have mouths and ears, but they can't hear and they can't speak. They are just like the idols who are mute and deaf and blind. They have eyes, but they don't see anything. They have ears, but they don't hear your prayers. The people are becoming what they worship. This is one of the reasons why worship is so incredibly important. This is why we come here. You, you read in Scripture of who Jesus is, of the things that he does, of the glory that is entailed in him, of his attributes, his characteristics, how he treats people, how he responds to people, how he instructs them, how he cares for them, qualities that we are meant to uphold. We then gather together, uphold them, and worship the man who embodies those things. And by doing it, we are giving our sanction to the fact that this is good and true. What we have been given in Scripture, the picture of what is good and true is indeed good and true. And something miraculous happens when that happens. It changes you. Over time, steadily, week by week, it changes you. It makes you into one who is like that. We want it to be a little bit, I don't know, less organic. We want it to be structured. We want 10 things to do here and eight things to do there. But quite often, it's just that simple. Worship the Lord. Gather with his people. Uphold what is good. See it as good. Worship it as good. And you change over time because you also become what you worship. You don't have to memorize every single sermon. I don't know what I preached on when Wednesday comes around. I don't expect you to. And I don't think that you're going to have some sort of like list of my greatest sermons that you can like repeat back to me. That was really impactful. But I can guarantee you, because of the work of the Lord, not because of me, over the span of years, it will have an effect on you that you can't quite quantify now. The people are distanced from God by their idolatry. The people then become ungodly in their idolatry. They, they start to be formed by this idol and not by the image of God. And now they're also objects of God's wrath. He says, Moses, son, you better step aside. I'm going to burn every single one of these fools to the ground. Which brings us then to the third point. That is the remedy for idolatry. Moses responds to this incredibly dramatic and concerning thing by basically stepping in between God and the people. Moses first knows well enough that he didn't do the things that God is saying that he did. You led your people out. You brought them out of Egypt. And Moses is like, dude, I, I carried a staff and I kind of put it down on the land every once in a while and I held it up to defeat some enemies, but I, I was just doing that. That's all the more I did. I did nothing else. Everything else was you. You know full well, you brought your people up out of the land of Egypt. And he reminds God 
That in Egypt, the whole purpose of that was to show the world your glory. Now the world knows that you've pulled these people out. If you kill them in the desert, it's going to absolutely destroy all the work that you've done. Your name is going to be dragged through the mud. People are going to say wrong things about you. Which is amazing because God just told him, that's what I want to do. And Moses is saying, no, that's not what you want to do, Lord. And what's more, he reminds him, you've made promises. You have to keep those promises. How does it even get to that point? Why does Moses have to do this? If we're honest and we've listened well to what God has said earlier in the book of Exodus and even earlier than that in the book of Genesis, this particular passage makes Moses sound more like God than God has sounded here. God doesn't sound like the God from earlier. He sounds like something different. And Moses is the one who actually sounds like God. Now, on one level, that's quite a character arc for Moses, who was a stammering, escaping guy. When we met him back in Exodus chapter 4, he was doing everything he could to get out of the responsibility. And then his whole character arc now has come full swing so that he now, because he has been in the presence of God, he has heard the word of God, he has worshipped at the feet of God, he knows who this God is and he has been changed so that he looks like God. He sounds like God. He acts like God. He does the very things that God does. The whole point is that God has been setting him up for this. The promise to make a new people out of him, the, saying that he's going to destroy the people from the face of the earth, all of that is to provoke this response in Moses. That is what being in the presence of God will do. It will make you more like him. That is what Moses looks like. But why do this? Why not just, why not just do what God does routinely? Just get up and say, you know what? It's going to be some sort of difficulty for them, but I, I'm faithful to my people. I made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. I made promises to the patriarchs about their, their offspring. Their offspring should be as the stars of the sky. I can't, I can't fulfill that promise and destroy all of them. I made promises to deliver them into the promised land. I, I can't fulfill that if I kill them in the desert. So nevertheless, even though they have done great evil, I will be, I will be faithful to my word. I will be kind to them. God could have easily just said that. Why does he work this so that Moses has to intercede? I think probably one very simple reason. He wants Moses to intercede, but he also wants to show us that that intercession doesn't do everything it needs to. Moses' intervention does avert the anger of God but it doesn't placate it. It postpones it. It cannot quench it. It doesn't remedy the real problem. The people who are down worshiping a golden calf now, even when the mercy of God comes upon them, are not changed. They're no different than they were. Mercy isn't going to change them. They're still the self-interested, idolatrous group that they always were. And we find that. That's, that's one of the lessons you get as you go throughout it. You think, hey, they've really learned here. They haven't really learned. 
They're going to go through the same thing time and time again. Their children seem to do better, but they're going to fault in the same way. As you go throughout the history of Israel, it seems like they should learn, but they don't learn. Is it because the Jews and the Israelites just simply can't get their heads around who this God is? Absolutely not. It's because none of us can. Moses can intercede, and he can even do so well. He can remind God of his promises. He can remind about his glory and fame in the world, but Moses cannot help. The most glaring and obvious problem that comes up between the people and God. If God forgives them, he must leave justice behind. If God commits himself to justice, he must leave his promises behind. The sins of the people pit God's faithfulness against his justice. It pits his promises against upholding his own good name. Moses can see these problems. He can remind God of his his promises. He can notice them himself. And he can seek to be faithful to God in all of these situations, but he cannot intercede in a way that brings an end to that problem. His words simply can never be enough. Moses only has words. Jesus has blood. With that blood, he can and has done what Moses' words pointed at but could never do. With his blood, he can placate the wrath of God, absorbing all of it for us. And with that same very blood, he can cleanse us from our sin. And he reconciles man and God together. Moses intercedes and it pushes back the inevitability, but only has to push it back so far until Jesus Christ comes to undo all of it. He takes the wrath of God, therefore upholding justice. He forgives God's people, therefore upholding the promise, so that through him God can forge a new people, not divorced from Abraham, but faithful to fulfill the promises that were actually made to Abraham. This reflex in all human beings of idolatry is just kind of hard-baked into us. Education isn't going to do it. We, we seem to have this thing where we can, we can end the ills of society if we just educate people enough. Bullying goes on in schools. We just need to talk. Listen, bullies don't need a lecturing about not being, they're not, they're not like, oh, I shouldn't do this. Like, they, they know. They know. Sinful people. You can't, just, you can't just educate them about the sinfulness of things. It doesn't work like that. This idolatry is hard-baked into us. We need something better than that. And all of the problems of the world, whether it's poverty and disease, oppression and war, death and devastation, these are all real problems. But they all boil down to one single major problem, and that is the tendency of mankind towards sin. The tendency of mankind to turn away from God to our own heart's desire to pursue the things that we shouldn't, to love the things we shouldn't, to uphold what is good or even what is wicked in place of that which is ultimate. But there is a remedy for these things. A remedy that is sure, even if it is delayed. A remedy that is vouchsafed to us by the very being of God, that the work of Jesus Christ will make all things new, driving all that is wrong and bad away who destroys death and injustice and the end of our sin. These people so quickly changed. We will do everything that the Lord has called us to do. 
Aaron, up and make us gods. Make us idols. But just as quickly, the Spirit of the Lord can change you back. Just as quickly can the Spirit of the Lord make you new again. Just as quickly, believing in the work of Jesus Christ and entrusting yourself to it, can the Lord remake you in an instant. And just as quickly and even more gloriously, there will come a day, whether we are dead or whether we are alive, when in the horn blast, in the twinkling of an eye, in the snap of a finger, we will all be changed. Sin will be no more. It will not pester your life. It will not erode your body. You will be done with all of the evils of the world. You will be made new and fully new. Wait for that day. That is not a cheap magic trick. It's not an illusion. It will be real and true. And it will happen in only a moment of time. Trust in the Lord, believe in him, and commit yourself to him. Let us pray. Father, as we gather here to worship our God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all life, the redeemer of his people, our Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ, help us to hold him up as the most brilliant and glorious of all beings. Let our worship of him Create in us his image. Form us in his likeness that all might see and wonder and be amazed at the power displayed even through such simple jars of clay. Do this for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand and sing with us our song of response. All glory be to Christ.